Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Hebrews 11 lists what we've been calling the heroes of the faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, if we go back just a little ways to verse 19, the writer invited us, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, speaking of the fact that we get to approach God on the basis of what Jesus has done because of the supremacy of Jesus, because of his supremacy, we also have a supreme calling. We get to live a life of faith. We're called to persevere in faith and discipline. So the list includes 16 specific people. By faith, Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch pleases God and is spared death. By faith, Noah builds an ark, enters that ark, and then preserves himself and his family. By faith, Abraham follows God, believes God's promise of a son, offers that son as a sacrifice. In this passage, we learn that by faith, Abraham believes that God can bring the dead back to life in verse 19. We're invited to consider Abraham's faith as a sacrificial faith. Remember what we've already looked at, the worship of faith, Abel, the walk of faith, Enoch, the witness of faith, Noah, And the willingness, that is, the sacrifice of faith exercised by Abraham. And we begin to understand something, that faith is more than just simply believing something. That real faith incorporates worship, walk, witness, willingness. Does God expect? Or even demand sacrifice. Well, God made promises. God keeps promises. Jesus made promises and keeps promises. Jesus makes statements and sacrifices. So what exactly does God expect from us? Does God expect us to believe minimum that he made promises and that he's willing to keep those promises? God calls the believer to both believe what he says, but I'm going to suggest to you to inherit what he says, a faith that obeys God without regard to cost is a demanding faith. 
But whatever Abraham's faith demonstrates for us or calls us to, it reminds us that a demanding faith is also a rewarding faith. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand what the Old Testament writer in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 said when he said that the just shall live by faith. And then Paul repeats that very statement in the book of Romans and says the just shall live by faith. What he means is that those who are justified before God, those who are right in God's sight, live this life of faith. And some people's faith is weak. And some people's faith is strong. And some people's faith is tested. And some people's faith remains untested. So what does it say in verse 17? Look, it begins with the test of faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... Now, we're struck by the gravity of the test. For those of you who are familiar, the Lord understands this and underlies this. The record of the test is found in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but in Genesis chapter 22, there are a a couple of things that I actually want to be able to read to you in verses, well, 1 through 3 and 9 through 12 in verses Uh, 15 through 18 in Genesis chapter 22 it says now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and he said to him Abraham and he said here I am then he said take now your son your only son Isaac whom you love go to the land of Moriah Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Now skip down to verse 9. Then he came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay on your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now skip down to verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son. Your only son. Blessing I will bless you. And multiplying I will multiply. Your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And as the sand which is on the seashore. And on your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because 
you've obeyed my voice. You know, it was Charles Spurgeon who was called the prince of preachers who said, untested faith may be true faith, but it is sure to be small faith. And it is likely to remain little as long as it is without trials. Faith never proposes or prospers so well as when all things are against her. Tempests are her trainers. Bolts of lightning are her illuminators. When he said those things, he was reminding us that invariably, whatever it means to know God, whatever it means to love God, whatever it means to walk with God, it's going to involve an evaluation. And for those of you who've been here on Sunday, you know that in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, I talked about tests and that typically tests fall into two kinds of people, those who like tests and those who despise tests. The problem with tests is you can always fail the test. But, but tests have something way more important about them. They can prove something. The Lord commanded Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Pause for just a moment. Did Abraham only have one son? One and only son. No, actually... He was the father of another child with another woman, Hagar. So why in the world does God refer to Isaac as your son, your only son? Because this is the only son of the promise. And in Genesis chapter 22, it says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Do you realize that this is the first mention of love in the Bible? It doesn't occur in Genesis chapter 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 or even 14 or 15. You have to march through 22 chapters in the Bible and the first mention of love in the Bible isn't even God's love for his creation. It's the mention of a father's love for his son. Isn't that interesting? He says, take your son, your son, who you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there for a burnt offering. Abraham's promise was Abraham's treasure. Abraham at this point in the story is about 117 years old. Sarah is about 108 years old. Isaac, if my calculations are correct, is probably somewhere around 17 years old or more. William Barclay's comment on this particular passage is important. He was a wonderful scholar who didn't necessarily have a very high view of miracles, but he had a deep understanding of the cultural context. And he wrote, to some extent, this story has fallen into disrepute disrepute nowadays. It doesn't appear in the syllabuses of religious education because it's held to teach a view of God that that no longer 
seems accepted. Or failing that, it's held to teach that the point of the story is that it was in this way that Abraham learned that God did not desire human sacrifice. There were days when men considered it a sacred duty to offer up their firstborn sons to God before they learned that God would never desire desire a sacrifice like that. No doubt that is true. But if we want to see this story at its greatest, and if we want to see it as the writer of Hebrews saw it, we must take it at its face value. It was the response of a man who was asked to offer God his son, unquote. Question. Does God know what Abraham will do? Yeah, he does. He's the God of the universe. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He knows the beginning from the end. There's nothing that he doesn't know. So does Abraham's obedience come as a surprise to God? No. But who doesn't know? Abraham. Abraham has this promise. God's told him that he's got a son, but does he really, does he really, does he really believe it? You know, one of my favorite illustrations on this particular subject are, are for those of you who saw the cheese ball movie Rocky. And you'll remember Sylvester Stallone plays an Italian fighter and and he is going to be in a match with the heavyweight champion of the world Apollo Creed and there's a particular scene in the movie where where Rocky gets this opportunity to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world and he's talking to his girlfriend Adrian and he says to her I gotta I, I, I gotta know Rocky, what is it that you need to know? I I need to know. What is it that you need to know, Rocky? I need to know if I could go to the distance. He's going to go into the ring and he needs to know the truth about himself and whether or not he is who he says he is. And this is part of the point of the test. Abraham needs to know the truth about himself and the truth about his faith and the truth about his relationship with God just like you. Because I know that there have been times in your life where you've been sitting in your bed and you're wondering, is this Bible true? And is Jesus really the Lord? Is this a joke? Is this some sort of cosmic fabrication? Do I believe the truth or do I believe a lie? Wearsby tells us again that Abraham enrolled in the school of faith at the age of 75. He began the journey at the age of 75. When he is well over a hundred years, that's when the test comes. Wearsby writes, we're never too old to face new challenges, fight new battles, learn new truths. When we stop learning, we stop growing. And when we stop growing, we stop living, unquote. Abraham is going to be tested. And the Bible teaches that you're going to be tested. Does that come as a surprise to you? It shouldn't. Remember what Jesus said? 
In the world, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be tests and trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes in the New Testament, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to test you as though some strange thing happened to you. Peter writes and he goes, what, what? You're shocked and you're surprised? The moment that you declare love and loyalty for Jesus, Satan shows up and says, have you really declared love and loyalty? Don't you remember that it wasn't until you became a Christian that all hell broke loose. When you were going your own way, when you were walking in your own direction, when you were doing your own thing, you weren't a threat. But some believers still think it's strange that their faith is tested. They panic. We all experience trials and tests, and for some of us, the trial or the test seems severe. Some of you might look around the room or you might think about the past or you might think about the present and you might be thinking, why is one person's test so profound or or so severe? Why are other people's less severe? But what if I told you that our God has designer trials, tailor-made trials for each child of God to fit their unique circumstance. God knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your life. He knows your future. And God has designed very specific things just for you. The trials that Lot is going to face are going to be very different from what Abraham faces. Some Bible teachers suggest it's a compliment when God sends a fiery trial. That God's tests are God's promotions. But how often do we go, Lord, you must really trust me. Because this seems fairly profound. Warren Wiersbe writes, Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable and expect what seems impossible. He goes on and he says, Joseph in prison, Moses and Israel at the Red Sea, David in the cave, Jesus at Calvary. The lesson is the same. We live by promises. Not by explanations. What becomes most troubling about what we're reading and thinking about, you're maybe even thinking about it and you're reading it and you're going, well, wait a minute, that sounds like crazy talk. God showing up and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this place. It's called Mount Moriah. And by the way, most Bible scholars believe that this place called Mount Moriah is the place of an ancient city that was called Jebus. And it was the top of a pinnacle. And when 
Abraham goes there, it is the place that is later going to be the place where the temple is built by Solomon and David. This is going to be the place called Jerusalem. And that's, that place is the place where Jesus is going to be arrested. And Jesus is going to be tried. And Jesus is going to be crucified. And Jesus is going to come back to life. Do you think that this, that's just a coincidence? Or is there something more to the story? Dr. Bruce Waltke tells the story of a man who was attempting to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River in Canada. And and unsure of whether the, the ice would hold him, he tested the ice. What he basically did is he put his hand on the ice and then he put another hand on the ice. And then he slid his body onto the ice. And then he started inching his way across the river, hoping that the ice would hold until he gets about halfway to the middle of the river. And all of a sudden he hears a noise in back of him. He hears a loud thunderous roll and he looks behind him. And there is a team of horses with a wagon loaded with supplies coming right to the edge of the frozen river. And it goes out onto the river and then it roars right past him. And he's shaking. Because he wasn't sure that the ice would hold him. But the people who lived there crossed it day after day after day. And the same is true of Christianity and Christ and faith. You see people who open up their Bible and they tell you God's word is true. And that his promises can be trusted. And with fear and and trepidation you open your Bible and you wonder whether or not what it says is true. But the reoccurring theme that we've learned in this book. We can depend on God's promise. We can depend on God's provision. We can trust that God knows what he's doing. And sometimes when we're hurt, and sometimes when we're in need, and sometimes when we have to bear an unsufferable burden, we focus on the hurt. We focus on the pain. We focus on the burden. We want out of the test. But Abraham doesn't balk he doesn't complain he doesn't panic for those of you who saw the movie BC there's a particular scene in the movie where this particular story is reiterated and you see uh, Abraham like some crazy guy getting ready to sacrifice his son and his wife is some sort of wild Jewish woman going What are you, crazy? I'm going to call Child Protective Services. What kind of a nutcase are you hearing from some sort of nut God offering our child? What kind of a nut are you? Is that really what happened? And is that how the story unfolds? That is so not the case. That is so not what's happening in the Bible. Isaac is 17 years old. He's old enough to take this old man and throw him on the pile himself. But you know what the Bible says? He obeys God immediately. He makes the journey. 
And look what it says at the end of verse 17. He offers up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. The expression offered up deserves closer examination. If you look at the text itself, read it. Offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. It appears twice in the sentence. The Greek has different tenses, though, which I found really interesting. In the first part of the verse where it says offered up Isaac... It's in what's called the perfect active indicative. The word in the Greek language is prospero. Pros is a prefix of the root word pharaoh. Perfect tense indicates completed action. So the idea is an offering that is made that's complete But Abraham didn't complete the offering. When we read in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18, Abraham doesn't go through with it. A.T. Robertson offers this in part as an explanation. He says, quote, The act was already consummated so far as Abraham was concerned when it was interrupted. That insight by the Greek scholar tells us something. The moment that the Lord said, offer your son, your only son, your only begotten son, whom you love. The moment that God said that in Abraham's mind, In Abraham's mind, in Abraham's heart, he was already dead. He was going to obey God. He was going to obey God. And in his mind and in his heart, his son is gone. The second occurrence has the same verb, but this time it's in the imperfect tense. That means that it continues. Again, Robertson suggests that we have the imperfect of an interrupted action. He offered up Isaac in his mind he's dead. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. The act was already consummated earlier. Abraham in the process of sacrificing his son God intervenes in the process to save the boy. Ralph Earl points out, quote, the distinction between the two tenses is brought out well by changing the second occurrence to was ready to offer up in the RSV, was offering up in the New American Standard, or was about to sacrifice in the NIV. Incidentally, the verb prospero literally means bring to. But it's used a lot of times in the New Testament, more than a dozen times in the book of Hebrews. It's, 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 
translated to bring a sacrifice, to bring a sacrifice, to bring a sacrifice. That's its meaning here. And the writer of Hebrews uses the same word to describe God bringing Jesus on your behalf. And the word offered up Isaac and who had received the promise of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed is the Greek word sperma, which means offering or descendants. And in this context, it's different from in verse 11. In in chapter 11, verse 11, it says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, singular, speaking of the birth of Isaac. Here, in this context, in this verse, it means all of his earthly descendants. Isaac is called only begotten because he's the exclusive son of the promise. The descendants that God is speaking of are the descendants of Isaac. So how can this be if Isaac is dead? How can the promises be be fulfilled? Again, now again, I want you to do the math in your mind and think it through. How in the world Can Abraham bring himself to the conclusion that Isaac is dead and that he is as good as dead, but in order for God to be real and true and keep his promises, he's going to have to bring his son back to life. The reason why this becomes such an important thing for each and every one of you is because this, I think, with the possible exception of maybe Job, this is the origin of the concept of resurrection. The idea of resurrection appears first at this particular point because up until this point in Genesis chapter 22, people have come and gone. People have lived and died. No one, no one as far as we know, no one has ever come back to life. Dead people don't come back to life. Abraham receives a revelation from God. Do this. Abraham in his mind thinks. In order for God to be God. In order for God to keep his promises. He's going to have to bring him back to life. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 19. He goes through the thought process in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. John Phillips speaks of the magnitude of the trial. The magnitude of the trial that we've just discussed in verses 17 and 18. And then the magnificence of his trust in verse 19. And I want you to think about this. Because you would be making a mistake. I think you would be making a terrible mistake. If you think that Abraham didn't suffer. Or Isaac didn't suffer. Think about what Abraham is doing. He's not hiding from his son. 
He takes his son. In his mind, the moment that he begins the journey and he begins to walk towards Moriah, his son is dead, his son is dead, but his son must come back to life. His son must come back to life. And again, it's a picture of our salvation. A father and a son walking together, acting together. Providing together. The son has to die. The son will bear the burden of sin. You'll remember in Genesis 22. The father cuts the wood. But the son bears the burden. The writer of Hebrews sees this in his words. In a figurative sense. What does that mean? Did Isaac really die? No. But in Abraham's mind, the moment God said, do this, in Abraham's mind, he's dead. God will bring him back to life. God will restore his son to the father. And by the way, the word translated figurative sense is in parabole. It occurs 50 times in the New Testament. It's translated parable 46 of those times in the New Testament. And remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that describes a heavenly truth. But here in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 9 and Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19, it's translated figure. So what does Abraham really believe? He really believes that his son is going to die and he really believes that God's going to bring him back to life. And I can't begin to tell you how important this is. Because he's not talking about the kind of faith where you just simply believe in a haphazard way that God says something and it may or may not be true. In order for Abraham's reality and life and ministry and walk, in order for it to come to pass, a real God is going to have to bring his real son back to life. And again, I want you to think about the context. Read the title of the book. It's to the Hebrews. What are the Hebrews tempted to do? do. They're tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the temple. They're tempted to go back to the sacrifice. They're tempted to go back to a religion of animal sacrifices and Old Testament revelation. And it seems that Abraham is the first person ever to think long and hard About a God who brings a son, an only begotten son, a son of promise back to life. Where in the world did Abraham get that idea? How do you dream up a God who brings people back to life? William MacDonald writes, quote, 
He had committed himself to the fact that Isaac must be slain. God credited him with the act. But as Grant put it so poignantly, the Lord spared Abraham's heart a pang. He would not spare his own, unquote. He provided a ram to take Isaac's place and the only begotten son was returned to his father's heart and home, unquote. For the person who says that Genesis chapter 22 is the description of a monstrous God who would never ever require anything like that misunderstands both the nature of God, the character of God, and the promises of God because this is the God whose not going to spare his own son. He's not going to withhold his own son. This is the father who is going to allow his son to be beaten and brutalized. This is the father who is going to allow his son to bear a burden of wood. This is the God who's going to allow his son at his hands and his feet his side is going to be pierced. This is the God who's going to allow his son not simply to die, but to die under the most difficult of circumstances. That's what it means by the figurative sense. Isaac doesn't really die, except in one place. In his father's mind and in his father's heart. Jesus really does die on Moriah in Jerusalem. And Jesus really will be raised from the dead. You know, it's interesting to me in Genesis chapter 22, verse 19, when I was preparing this study, if we go back to Genesis chapter 22, I want to bring something to your attention. In verse 19 it says, So Abraham returned to his young men. And they rose. And they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Abraham returns to his two servants. But nothing is said of Isaac. Nothing is said of Isaac. Are we to believe that he goes to the two servants, but he leaves his 17-year-old on Mount Moriah? Does he take him home? Isaac isn't mentioned again in the text until he's marrying his bride in Genesis chapter 24, verse 62. What a beautiful picture of our Lord and his church. We are fairly certain that Isaac does, in fact, return home with his father. But the Bible's type reminds us that the next event in the prophetic calendar is the return of Jesus to get his bride. Isn't that amazing? What's the purpose of the trial? How are we to think about the suffering? I'm going to suggest to you that Abraham's faith draws him close to the mind of the father and the heart of the father. 
And you see, that's what real faith really does. Real faith, biblical faith, doesn't cause you to distance yourself from the God of the Bible, but it, you draw close. You get closer. Martin Luther wrote, quote, Our suffering is not worthy of the name of suffering. When I consider my crosses, my tribulations, my temptations, I shame myself almost to death thinking what they are in comparison of the sufferings of the, my blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. How are we to think about our suffering? It becomes the opportunity for us to trust the Lord and believe the Lord. Trials have a beginning. Trials also have an end. And by the way, if you just flip the page to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, look what it says. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, But may the God of all grace, who called, you, called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That the suffering that he talks about provides completeness, it establishes us, it strengthens us, it settles us. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're kidding. You're kidding, right? You're kidding. No, I'm actually not kidding. What the trial does for Abraham is it not only convinces him of the truth about his faith, but it strengthens him, establishes him. Again, I want you to think about where we've come from just for a second. How old was Abraham when he was promised a son? Who remembers? 75 years old. Abraham, 75 years old when God gives him the promise. Abraham waits 25 years for Isaac to be born. Isaac was perhaps 17 when he marched up Mount Moriah, the future settlement of Jerusalem. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham is 117 years old. Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. Another 20 years will go by before he has the twins, Esau and Jacob. Abraham dies at the age of 175. I'm so thrilled about that because all of a sudden, 60 seems very, very young. <laughs> but again, I want you to think about this for just a second. He's 175 years old. And at the time that he dies, he has one son. He has two grandchildren. And both of his grandchildren are about 15 years old.
This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says he didn't see all the promises. You know, in Romans, Paul tells us that Abraham didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. In Romans 4, 20 and 21, it says, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that he who had promised was able to perform. You know, a weak faith lacks endurance and a weak faith stumbles and falls. But do you realize how a weak faith can become a strong faith? Weak faith becomes strong faith the moment that you just say three simple words. God, help me. It's really that simple. Weak faith becomes strong faith the moment that you ask for God's help and we can cultivate an attitude of trust and confidence in Christ. Remember, faith is a gift from God according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Effective faith, confident faith depends upon God. Effective faith, confident faith rests in what Jesus has done. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul will write, so now, since we have been made right Since we've been made right in God's sight by faith in his promises, we can have real peace because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Real peace because of what Christ has done for us. Real joy because of what Christ has done for us. Real hope because of what Christ has done for us. Strong faith grows stronger under pressure, through endurance, in hopeful anticipation. Do you remember when you were young? Some of you go, nope, too long ago. That ship has sailed. Some of you might remember about your birthday when you were very small, maybe four or five or six You knew your birthday was coming and you knew with your birthday would come treats and gifts and maybe even some special surprises. Now in the real world in which we we live, it might not be a very fond memory for you. Instead of a time of joy and a time of special treats and a time of gifts, maybe you remember it as a time of disappointment. But biblical faith always anticipates at least two things. That which is sure and that which is certain. And this is why biblical faith has a secure beginning and a secure end. Because you see, biblical faith begins in God's character. That is, he is who he says he is. We believe in God's promises that he'll do what he says. We believe that God will fulfill his promises even though we don't see how that promise is going to come to pass. And so think about that. God's promises begin with his character and continue when you begin to realize that 
his love and his omnipotence and his omnipresence will bring it to pass. When we believe that God will fulfill his promise, even though we don't see how exactly he's going to do that, that's when we demonstrate faith. God's at work. And you might think, but everything in my life seems to be going wrong. No, I believe by faith what the Bible says, that he who's begun the work is going to continue the work. How much faith does it take to go one step further? He began the work in you. He continues the work in you. And then he's going to finish the work in you. You know, the day I got saved, when I marched forward and I received Christ as my savior, the counselor or the person who talks with you when you receive Christ. He opened up the Bible and he turned to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And he goes, hey, you know, I think that the Lord wants me to share this with you. And then he said, behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in his heart comforts himself. I never forgot it. I always remembered it. I always went back to it. Over and over and over again. It says, we shall see him. We're going to see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. That hope has a way of cleansing and purifying. Particularly when you are contaminated with doubt or guilt or unbelief. And especially when you ask the question, I don't know how all this is going to end. And my response is sometimes neither do I. I don't know exactly how everything is going to unfold. But I do know this, that when he will appear, we will be like him. I can't tell you how big a promise that really is. See, when the text says, and we will be like him, that means I, I won't be like me. I know that may not be as comforting to you as it is to me, but it's tr- hugely comforting to me. And this is why Abraham's called the father of faith. His journey begins with an impossible call, verses 8 through 10. It continues with an immense step of faith. He went out, not knowing where he was going at the end of verse 8. God taught him to live by faith, to live as a pilgrim, and then he tested him. And then Abraham went through with it. Abraham was willing to believe that God would bring his son back to life. 
And that's exactly, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is asking the reader to believe. That God brought his son back to life so that you could have hope, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Abraham believed he had no evidence because no one had ever come back to life. Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. Enoch pleased God and God took him, bypassing death. By faith, Noah built an ark and was spared God's judgment. By faith, Abraham followed God, believed God's promise of a son, and then offered that son as a sacrifice. Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice. Jesus is our walk and world and hope of overcoming death. Jesus is our ark that spares us from God's judgment. Jesus allows us to follow God, to hear God, believe God, receive his promise. That's faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray now that you'd prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, we know that Christians throughout the centuries have gathered together in places very different from this place. And in some instances, just like this place. And they've examined their hearts. And they've confessed their sins. And they've reminded themselves of what Jesus has done about Jesus' love, about Jesus' sacrifice, about Jesus' resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause us even now to consider for a moment and contemplate what it means to know you and to love you and to believe that what you say is true. And that we have this wonderful opportunity that we can gather together And remind ourselves that when God speaks and that when he makes a promise, that he'll keep the promise. So prepare our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. All I ask is that you just hold the elements.